Hello, welcome to today's episode of Beam, the podcast from Super League. I am your host, Matt Edelman, the president and chief commercial officer of Super League. This is our eighth episode and one in which we will continue to explore what it is that helps brands achieve success in the 3D web. How do they know where to spend their energy? What do they need to build? How do they let their audiences know what is happening in these spaces that they've created? And what does it all mean? How do they measure it? How does it end up bringing business results to them? This is our first episode of 2024, and it is a look back on what happened at Super League and all the things that we experienced together and with our team and with our partners over the past year, as well as what we think may be coming in the year ahead. And there's no better person to speak to that than our leader, who has been steering this company for about eight years through incredible change, remarkable growth, industry challenges, the change of the team composition, shifts in our business. It's really been quite remarkable that we have achieved everything that we've achieved under a single leader for that long, based on how much has changed since and first became the company's CEO. So it's been a real pleasure and quite exciting and humbling to see somebody lead a company through that amount of uncertainty to the point now where we have a lot of confidence and certainty about the future. Um, I'll say that my dad always says I never give up easily, perhaps reflected by my first marriage. Just a little side <laughs> joke. <laughs> um, well, I'm still in my first marriage, so... There you um, go. Well, you don't you know, give up I, easily I guess, either. I guess either that <laughs> or my, my wife doesn't give up easily. But it's sort of fun to think back to when Anne and I first met we had been introduced and had already become the CEO of Super League. I was working at WME IMG, now named Endeavor. Super League came in for a meeting and after that meeting, Anne suggested that we get together and she specifically said, you know, we should go grab a beer. And sometime within the next month or so, we actually went to meet for a drink and she ordered a martini. And, you know, I was so surprised in a way that, you know, you have this martini because you said you wanted to come get a beer. And she said, you know, I don't know why I said that. I don't like beer. <laughs> and so it was a funny moment and also kind of endearing because all of a sudden I knew that Anne was incredibly self-aware, self-confident and comfortable talking about even a silly little mistake or misstatement. I still do it. I still say, let's go have a beer. I can't unwind it. I don't know where it, it comes from. It's like my generic term for soda. <laughs> generic term for liquor. Is that something your father also, you know, helps? I, no, <laughs> I, I don't think so. You know, you know what I remember? There's a couple of really important things I remember about that meeting. I had just done a panel at the Milken Conference, and I was the moderator with Rick Fox and Peter Levin and all these big gaming guys. And it's fun to be the moderator because you can kind of, as you know, you can kind of guide things. And at one point in the audience, we saw one of our youth players, our Super League youth players, his mom works for Milken. And in the middle of the panel, Rick Fox went down and hugged this kid. And it was the first time I had put out publicly the positioning we had about really debunking the myth of who a gamer is and believing in good gaming, that gaming's great for you in the right context. And I told you about that. 
I was so That's effusive. Right. I was feeling it. And you said to me back, gosh, I only feel that way when I'm coaching my son's little league team. And the second thing I remember is I got in my car as we left the hotel lobby where we were having the drink. And I thought, do you think he wants to work with me? Like, do you think there's a chance? Like, there's just something about our conversation. It was so real and open. And I pulled my car over to send you a note. So the good news is I didn't text and drive, but I didn't want to wait till I got home. I was too excited at the idea of you joining Super League. Well, the feeling was clearly mutual. I remember getting the note and thinking, she didn't wait two days. <laughs> <laughs> and so the good news is we have continued to be able to enjoy the partnership that has formed over the six and a half years that I've now been here. And we do it over the drink that we realize we both prefer, which is a martini. <laughs> and it has- Sometimes you have a little bourbon on me. You mix it up. The real reason that I was excited to talk to you is because we've had such a remarkable year. Yeah. Like many companies, especially earlier stage companies, a lot of ups and downs, challenges that we really could never have anticipated, probably some challenges that we caused for ourselves, but also a lot of wins and a lot of amazing moments and some incredibly proud accomplishments. And it'll be fun to talk through some of that. And I think through that discussion, we will be able to help the audience for Beam and the companies we work with through Super League to get some more insight as to what's happening in this space in the immersive web. I think maybe starting a little bit though, by winding the clock back just a tad, you know, you had to oversee the transition of a business from really being initially one that was creating a direct consumer presence to one that was enabling others to create a direct consumer presence, even though the revenue was sort of coming from largely the same source. And that's really having been in businesses and helping to run major teams and organizations where you sort of also navigated between those two worlds. And I just, I'm curious, you know, how did you navigate that? How did you successfully figure out how to get the team to understand this transition and tell that story to the stakeholders who matter to our future? Yeah, it's interesting because I've run a lot of B2B brands, but I've also run a lot of B2C brands. Now, the first thing I'll say is when you're running brands that already exist and have scale, whether they're B2B or B2C, life is a lot easier. You have infrastructure in place and a track record and a lot of insights and information and a lot of deep understanding of those brands. It's really hard to start a brand from scratch, any brand, B2B or B2C. What I would say is that often with a lot of the larger brands that I ran at BP, there was a B2B and a B2C division. And the power was when we thought about those as B2B2C. And the examples were that if I'm selling you know, a big annual contract to a GE or to a British Airways, knowing just as much about their user base and the consumers that are buying their things. We did a lot of big deals with Walmart. We would structure into the B2B contracts, which on the surface could look kind of like something commoditized. But what we would do is come in saying, we know you, we know your brand, we know your consumer, 
And we care deeply about that. And we've packaged together a program that really allows you to lean into your brand positioning. And so that's how my mind has always kind of worked. So yes, we started out and we were trying to get people to sign up at Super League, that everyday consumer. We knew that our bread was going to be buttered on the back of brand sponsorship deals, which is going to be that partnership program. I still think what's so cool about it, though, today, when I look back, you know, we spent a few years trying to build that consumer brand, right? And it didn't really scale, not quite to the way we all had hoped. And we were trying to find a business model, and again, in a very nascent industry. But I often look back and, hey, this just could be like, me being a brand marketer 101, but I kind of positioned those first few years as R&D. Because what we were doing is we were deeply getting to know that end user, that Gen Z, now Gen Alpha gamer, and the way they want to consume content and interact with content and behave. And it's very different than the millennial gamer in many ways, or certainly from my generation. And so I think it was those insights that allows us now really credibly to go to brands and say, look, we understand this audience you're seeking. That's why you really need to use us. We're one of really a, a small number of companies who are truly experts. We have 10 years almost in this space. And so that credibility, when a brand is trying to understand this new marketing channel, and we can say to them, we understand this space deeply, we're going to hold your hand and walk you through this. I think it gives these CMOs a lot of comfort, especially because those jobs, they aren't celebrated to take risks. And then I often really have enjoyed as of late being able to say, I've been in your chair, like I've been there. And so here's how, if I were in your chair today, this is the way I'd step into this. And the beauty is, is that we can come in as experts, strategists, and really help them discover something that is inevitably going to become a persistent part of their marketing strategy. You articulate that so well. I think some of the time we talk to brands and are discussing what's important about these 3D spaces, they don't yet internalize the fact that when they're trying to reach under 25-year-olds, which is really Gen Z and Gen A, there are two choices, two choices through digital screens. They can reach them through social platforms where they're generally consuming video, or they can reach them inside interactive 3D environments, which is predominantly games. Otherwise, they really don't spend significant time anywhere else where advertising has a meaningful presence. So if you look at that, in a sense, you realize that under 25-year-olds' entire experience through digital is algorithmically influenced. It's all there to incentivize them to do something next. And sometimes it's passive and sometimes it's active, but it's all, I try not to use this word, but I can't help myself. It's all gamified. And so even the members of those demographics that don't actively play in games have been trained I'm not sure if it's to the betterment or detriment of society, but they've been trained to be gamed in the way that content is presented to them, especially because the choices they make are reinforced by the next piece of content they're shown. And so it's a perspective that a lot of older millennial or Gen X 
C-level marketing decision makers haven't quite embraced. And I love the fact that you're able to say, and as a team, we're able to tell them, there's a framework here that if you really lean into is going to change your relationship to these audiences. Yeah. What I say a lot of times is if it's getting in your way, whether it's an investor or a CMO or an agency head, that we're using the word gaming, just stop using it. Because what you really need to understand is the audience is there. And I almost see these as just the next wave or generation of social media channels. They're just way more personalized, customized, interactive. And your brand, your audience is there, and you're missing an opportunity to have a very intimate conversation with them, one that actually really, in a very different way than a skippable ad, can drive an intimate conversation that drives real preference and loyalty. And so if you think about it, these experiences, and instead of it being a, a point and click, and you know, it's your finger or your mouse doing the talking, it's now an individual's avatar is the new mouse in these immersive worlds. And you get a chance to have a human conversation with them. And I try to say this stuff in a way that I'm like, look, you don't need a PhD. We're not talking about all the broadest ways you've seen people talk about metaverse and Web3. Right now, we're just talking about the fact that you've already got 500 million plus in these immersive open world platforms. They're hanging out there. And when you do a campaign with them, that's great. That's the dip the toe in the water. We're going to show you that off the charts ROI, the big engagement numbers. We're going to show you like Super League can, and I think we're really separating ourselves from the pack that we're also the ones that can solve for conversion and attribution, the things that marketers think they can't get in these platforms. But then the next big thing we have to do is say, you know, you have a strategy for Instagram, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got one. And you don't just do Instagram. You have YouTube and Facebook and you have a multi-channel strategy for social media. And it's a persistent strategy. You're creating fandom and loyalty and you don't do it by blasting them with content for 30 days and then going completely silent on them. You keep a persistent relationship going with that community. But when you just did that beautiful campaign and you got, you know, 60 million visits to Barbie's dream house in one month, and then we demolished the dream house, gone. You just did that. You just told this fan base, I see you, I hear you, you're Barbie fans. But then in that specific game world, we disappeared on them. And I think that's the turning point that I really think in 2024, we're going to start to see brands understand that in a way, the smartest marketing efficiency play is to leverage that development work for that immersive experience and get value of it all year long, because it's really just a permanent billboard that, again, is just way more personalized, intimate, and can deliver all of your campaign objectives. When we have a chance to talk to the representatives of brands at the agency level or CMOs, the message is definitely resonating at a deeper and deeper level with sort of every passing month and every passing example that is occurring in these spaces, showing the potential of making a more meaningful commitment to the audiences who spend their time there. How is it different when you're talking to investors. That's a big part of your job is keeping as the CEO of our small but mighty public company interesting to the investment community. 
And some of this, I'm sure, resonates with them, but they are also thinking about the financial return. And so how does the message change when you're talking to them? In many ways, the opening is the same. Because what we're doing right now is we're serving as translators for people who, whether you're a brand or you're an investor, you're looking into this space, you're seeing a lot of hype. You can't separate out what's the hype and what's real, but you're feeling the urge to understand it. And you can see that it's kind of where the future is going. And so the first thing I think that we're able to do is is relate to them by saying, you know, I know this sounds a little crazy, but there really are half a billion people already in these platforms and you don't need a VR headset for them. And guess what? Immersive content has a 250% higher engagement rate. All the same things we do in our interest of brands, we take them through those very digestible proof points that then make them say, okay, I get it. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't something that's five years out. It's here. It's now. I've had a Some pretty important big brands, their global heads of media say, I know my audience has moved. I know my ad dollars haven't caught up. I'm just, it's going to take me a beat to get my head around it. Like you said, we've got a C-suite out there, including, you know, me, who didn't grow up with these types of gaming platforms. And so I think the next thing, though, for investors, for us, is being in micro cap and just having to suffer the tough bear market, you know, the last two years. The positioning with them is really like, you know, you're not going to find a growth stock more reasonably priced in an emerging space, emerging technology that is going to be critical for the future of 3D web and how brands engage. The time to get in is now. And I think what they get excited about, Matt, is when we can so powerfully articulate, well, who else is in this space? Because we know the ecosystem. We know who the players are. Many of them are our friends and friendly competitors. And when we show our strong point of view that we're in a leading position, our top line revenues don't lie. When you're public, they're out there. Everybody can see them. And we really do have stronger revenues than most of the people we bump into in this space. And so we're on this faster growth trajectory. And we're really positioned to be a natural, I think, hub for the opportunity to continue what we've already been doing, which is organic growth and inorganic. And so being acquisitive, I think that's where they get excited from the investment side. The nice thing with brands is I always thought when we first went public, I mean, I was used to big company public, and I thought these brands would look at us and go, what have you done? (laughs) Strangely, I've never had any brand say that in the last three, four years. It's almost like because they understand the reporting requirements, the governance, I think it makes them feel that we are more trusted, safe, stable, because we can't just be running cowboy out there, flying under the radar as a private company. So in a strange way, I think it's helped us, even if it's kind of just more implied. But yeah, that's the difference. I think the level of trust that is placed in us also has a lot to do with the caliber of you as a CEO and our management team and recognizing that it probably took a great deal of and has taken a great deal of fortitude to steer a company in this space that is public <laughs> during the you know the market that we've had. So I, I, I'm not surprised yeah. that we don't get criticized for it. It's almost yeah. like, wow, you, you guys have really pulled something off and stuck with it. Yeah. First, I want to say 
a lot of credit to our board. I ran another startup in the Bay Area for about five years prior, and it was bootstrapped all the time. And there was never any room to expand the leadership level because you were always only pulling enough cash to just get you through another six months, eight months. And so you lived reactively and not strategically. And when I was joining the company, I asked the board, like, I don't want to do that again. It's like, you're never going to really scale if you're operating that way. And they were the ones who said, go out and get a sitting public company CFO. Go out and hire Matt. Bring, get him in. I mean, they really encouraged us to build the team ahead of the growth. And that felt like, you know, a wonderful luxury and a very different experience. And I do think the other thing that's special about, you know, how we've earned that trusted status is I think we've always managed to show up as a company in a way that is confident, but also we're personable, we're inviting, and we are humble. And I think that when we sit down face-to-face with these big brands, I think they like us. Because I think, frankly, that is what our brand stands for. It, it is a likable brand, and it's based on what I think is a very friendly, likable culture. And so I think people want to lean in and do business with us because of that. That actually provides a perfect transition, talking about the business that we've been doing. 2023, it feels like it went quickly, but honestly, it also feels like it was a longer year than 2022. <laughs> and so I think 2023 flew, and now December is just dripping along. Every day I'm like, it's only December, what? So you are out, obviously, you know, you spend a great deal of time talking with external stakeholders, but you know, you have a terrific pulse on what's happening day to day at the company and you know, you look back over 2023, there've got to be some of your favorite moments or some of the projects and partnerships that you're most proud of or you're most proud of the team for having brought in and put together. I wonder if we could talk about some of the things that have stood out to you over the past 12 months. Yeah, I would say on the project front, look, again, at the end of the day, it's kind of hard to not separate out your personal stuff. I love the things that we did in fashion and beauty. I love them not just because I could enjoy and relate to them in different ways, you know, whether it be Carter's for Father's Day or Maybelline or what have you, but I just get very excited and think deeply about brand and who this audience is. And I just think there's something really beautiful about the way that these 3D environments allow people, young people, to really test the boundaries of self-expression. It's just so empowering all kinds of risks you can't take in real life, either on the playground or in the hallways of school. But you get to explore things about interests that you have and how you want to express yourself. And so I've personally felt a real kind of connection to some of those things in those verticals. I think the other one that makes me laugh still out loud to myself, and definitely it makes my nieces and nephews think that my job is cool, is the trolls experience. And again, it probably ties back to the same theme, but I mean, it just made me laugh that I was able to jump on a drum set and play in the rhythm to the music. And I know it's not really me playing, but I, to me, I was. And I was like one of those people. I, it was horrible piano, horrible, you know. <laughs> it was always that kind of one of those regrets, not being able to play a musical instrument. And I know, again, it sounds a little silly, but I felt like I played the drums that day. 
So I feel a great connection to all the beautiful experiences. I mean, you just can't not. Seeing is believing. You go into these worlds. There's so much pride every week because we're launching experiences every week. The other thing I've been proud of is more of an internal thing, and that is just the way the team has risen to the challenge. You know, again, we're in tough public and private markets. It's not easy to see that your share price isn't really a reflection of how we're performing. We've drastically increased our revenues this year relative to last, and we've been able to do so while really focusing our cost base in a much smarter way. And so I think what I've appreciated is, is instead of the team feeling like we're just kind of running people into the ground, I feel like they're appreciating that we're testing the bounds of what capacity looks like and what it's going to take to become profitable and to operate in a lean way. And we really build out a really impressive vice president layer, as you know. And I think the magic, I'm sure you feel too, of for you and I to be able to sit back and, and empower them to make some of these decisions. I got to believe you're loving your job more this year than a year ago because you have so much wonderful support in that layer. Of course, what you said about the board and really being supportive early on, I think this is something, you know, that early stage company founders and CEOs and even earlier stage investors may want to think about a little bit more than they otherwise do. The traditional model, which is understandable, is somebody tries to bring a company to life and they get paid very little. They're lucky if they can pay their rent. Usually it's their rent, not a mortgage. And there really isn't a lot of money to go out and do anything other than sort of prove that you've hit the starting blocks. You look at the pace of venture-backed companies that have gone out of business this year. And I think the latest statistic was that $27 billion of venture funding was invested in companies that went out of business in 2023. Yeah. And, and you sort of have to wonder, does that have anything to do with, in addition to market challenges or a lack of product market fit or maybe poor decision-making, does it have to do with how those companies were equipped in their earlier stages with the kind of experience around the table to help really make better and better decisions and allow the C-suite, so to speak, or the founder or co-founders to really take the time to think about the strategic trajectory of the company. And frankly, that's been a gift that our board has given to us, that you've given to me, that together we've been able to give to a tremendous group of executives who are, I still maintain, the most impressive executive team of any company in our competitive field, even while I admire and adore many of the other executives and founders and leaders at those competitive businesses. But I really think that it's been the reason we have been able to attract the partnerships we've attracted, attract the capital we've attracted, and achieve the results that are starting to really speak for themselves. I couldn't agree more. I mean, our extended leadership, it cannot be denied. And to your point, we partner with a lot of people in the ecosystem that we also maybe bump up against in the competitive process. And they've got strong folks, but they also look at us and say, wow. And they see the depth of that bench. 
And, you know, look, there's a lot of good things about the traditional VC model, but there is something that is a little, it's conflicted, right? Because those VCs, they're really only caring about the unicorn opportunities, right? And the 10x returns. And they're inevitably in the boardroom going to first vote in interest of their fund before the long-term strategy of the company. And so in a strange way, it's a very challenging way to run a business. You kind of always feel like you're under the gauntlet. And people often say, you know, oh gosh, don't you wish you were public? And of course, it's not easy being public, especially what we've endured. Now, if interest rates start getting cut, we might be back in that world where we're in this frothy public market. And all of a sudden, it's not a bad thing at all. I mean, if not for being public, you know, I often say, I don't think we would have made it through COVID because the markets were so strong that we could grab money. Private investors were all hoarding cash in COVID. Nobody was putting dollars to work. And that's why you're seeing now the inevitable implosion of a lot of these tech startups that just can't find the funds. There's a virtue in being public and there's a lot of transparency and there's good things about it. And equally, I would say it was those frothy markets that kind of helped supercharge our acquisition strategy, right? You know, imagine would VCs be willing to put together a meaningful pool of millions of dollars so that we could have a side strategy to to be acquisitive. You don't hear that happening too much in the VC world. The other thing that makes me kind of gives me some comfort, I know we laughed about this, not laughed, but this article about how many tech startups have gone bust a bit. And I do think, well, we're still here. Like, and there's right. plenty of big tech. I mean, Meta's trying to figure out 3D immersive platforms and they haven't figured it out. We're not doing so bad here. And so it's funny how when you frame it differently, I think there's a, so much we should be proud of. It's hard when you're in the year and you're working so hard and you're grinding to year's end to kind of come back up for air a bit and really realize, I think Super League is a team of winners and I think we're winning. I think the team will love hearing that and I completely agree with you. You know, the part of winning is about culture and you as the leader of the company in many ways exemplify and personify the culture of the organization and it's the direction and the guidance that you offer both you know to me and to the other executive team members but also to individuals throughout the organization who you are very purposeful in reaching out to given that you don't see them every day in an office. And I think you have such broad experience in major global companies. If I'm not mistaken, the last team that you oversaw was about 3,000 people. And now we're under 300. And we were down at 30, I think, around the time that I joined. Yeah. And 3 billion in revenues globally too. So see, that's what's in our future. There we go. When you look back again on this year and you think about, you know, what were some shining representations of our culture, either moments or just themes that you picked up in addition to seeing that people believe themselves to be and are acting like winners? What are some of the other things that really have warmed your heart about who we are? Good timing, that question, because I like at the end of the year to kind of do some reflecting not just dust off the annual plan and the strategy, but also the brand positioning. And I 
I was raised by a CEO who really taught me that brand is the root of all strategy and culture. And when all three of those things are kind of rowing in the same direction, magic happens. And um, I was thinking a lot about what I was proud of this year. And I was really proud of the way the team grew in their confidence, never in an arrogant way, and didn't lose that kind of inviting positioning. And I was thinking that it's like we've earned the right now, stepping into the new year, to I think be bolder. Now, that bold doesn't mean arrogant, right? But it's almost like we have earned the right to be more commanding with brands. And again, commanding not in a, a negative term, but we know the recipe that a brand needs to be using. And we know how to quickly identify the brands that are opening the door for us and laying us in and the ones who just are saying, I, I'm not ready yet. And I think that we are poised to have a year where we can be more bold and commanding and identifying those brand partnerships and moving those brand relationships more quickly from things that look campaign-centric to us being a real omni-channel enterprise solution for them in these new immersive platforms. The other thing I was thinking about a little bit and reflecting is, I think we did a good job under a lot of your encouragement as well a year and a half ago of turning our org to be more product-centric. I think the way that, not me, the way all of you responded to the Roblox challenge that was a big curveball. And we felt like it was a punch to the gut. And we, once again, a super league, we turned adversity around and turned it into a positive with our strategic partnership with them. And even just the way that I watched the exchanges that you have with Christine and other people there, again, it is, it's all rooted in trust, belief that we are knowledgeable, that we deeply care for the community, that we know what we're doing, that we're a source of innovation for them. It's powerful to kind of see the way we've responded to adversity. We we had a tough Q1 like everyone in the ad sector, and we didn't let that stop us. We broke Q2, Q3, and about to break another Q4 record on revenues. So the, the year wasn't handed to us by any stretch. So, you know, what I want us to really do in the new year is continue to be driven by being seen as the innovative partner, the strategist. I want us to trust and breathe that we are the experts in 3D experiences. It is in our DNA. It's who we are. I never want us to take for granted these partnerships we've worked so hard to build credibility with and to always be respectful to those big brands and important agencies on the other side of the table or the platforms. And then, you know, at the end of the day, work is an extension of our life. We should have as much fun as our experiences are giving to others. So always checking in that we're taking time to laugh and get to know each other personally, even if we work remotely, is important. Does that mean that maybe you'll come to the office and play the piano? I'm not going to play the piano, but I will play virtually <laughs> the piano. But I will come <laughs> to the go. office and I will dance if the DJ's playing. I've got other talents, you know, Matt. I've seen many. I've seen the, yeah. the dancing. So Some epic holiday parties. Yes, we definitely had some terrific holiday parties, especially like a lot of companies pre-COVID, although I have now run into a number of people who are going to their big company yep. holiday parties again, and it's really the first year since COVID that I'm hearing that from uh, a lot of the companies we work with. 
you touched on what you're interested in seeing and expect us to be able to do in terms of how we position ourselves in 2024. And I guess, is there anything that you think about that may shift in 2024 or that will accelerate in the space? And, and I guess asking a little bit in the context of what was a pretty eventful 2023. I mean, we had Fortnite, Epic release UEFN, which is essentially putting tools in the hands of Fortnite players who are creators and enabling them to build their own spaces in the world of Fortnite with much more advanced tools that are really still just getting started in terms of what they enable and support for those creators. But it does suggest that Fortnite is on its way to maybe challenging Roblox for supremacy in the UGC gaming space. So that was one huge development, still early. The other huge development you touched upon, Roblox leaned aggressively into brand partnerships and advertising at a level that they hadn't committed to previously. That created some challenges for our business, but more than that, it really opened up the space in a very public way that is drawing an enormous amount of additional attention to what's possible to do in these 3D platforms. And more and more brands and the agencies that help them allocate their money are paying attention now to the space, which is great for everybody. At the same time, Roblox was very strict around how that advertising can be deployed. So they prevent anything that is able to be interpreted as a paid ad from being shown to under 13-year-olds on their platform. None of those things happened in 2022, and each of them on their own truly had the potential to shift the spend of millions, if not tens of millions of dollars by brands and even by the player community. So are we to expect 2024 will come with additional significant developments that might have that kind of magnitude attached to them? Or are there more gradual evolutions that you anticipate? As you know all too well, there's going to be the continuous launch of new open world platforms. They'll struggle in the early days to get the audience reach. You can't dispute that Roblox and Fortnite has. But I'd say probably from the platform perspective, I think the company poised to have the biggest impact next year could very well be Meta. They are working right now. We, the head of Metaverse there reached out to me a few months ago on LinkedIn. I thought it was a joke, <laughs> but it, it wasn't. <laughs> he really is the, the chief Metaverse officer. And as you know, we've now spent a few different occasions with him and some of his lieutenants. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting when they launch the mobile kind of versions of Horizons because the power is, is while the audience isn't there at, to the same degree in the fully immersive case, imagine when you now have a much more accessible version of Horizons that has really powerful fidelity. And on top of it, they can instantly link their entire social media network behind it to drive people to the platform to sign up. So when you've got the interconnected web they're building, 
at least the, my perception is they're building between, you know, WhatsApp and Facebook and, you know, Insta and others, that that's a powerful way to drive significant audience there. So I'm curious about that. And I'm excited at the notion that they could be yet another channel for us as we aspire to be that kind of omni-channel or multi-channel partner for, for brands. I think the other thing for us you'll see is the business that we're in right now. You just say, well, what's the business we're in? Well, the business we're in is has some fantastic growth trends that have been happening throughout the year and will continue in 2024. I talked on our earnings call about the fact that we just won the largest program by far in our history, a $3.8 million program running over 3Q, mostly 4Q, a little into 1Q, but almost $4 million for a singular program. That's more than half our Q3 reported recognized revenue. So bigger deals, more persistent campaigns or more persistent experiences inside the existing channels where we really have most of our footprint. But I really hope next year too, aside from being able to point to specific brands and say, we run multiple channels for them across open world platforms. I think the power of us showing that we're also the company that can hold their hand to that next most important step beyond that, which is now let's go take a look at your website. And let's talk about the fact that Unity and Unreal effectively are democratizing the 3D web and allow us to do things for their dot-com presence that can allow them to take all those things they're learning about the way young consumers want to engage with them in these existing platforms and slowly take the step towards really having a much more modern, progressive approach to consumer engagement on their website and their own e-commerce as well. Um, so I think those would be powerful proof points that at least the investors would say, you guys are delivering on your vision. You know, it's interesting because if you just think of the past, I guess I would have to say close to 30 years, first brands had to learn the power of digital engagement. What was the language of digital engagement when the internet first became meaningful? Exactly. The next phase was well, how do you learn the language of mobile engagement? Yep. What does that look like? And then the language of social engagement, whether it's on a desktop or a mobile device. And really now what we're suggesting is there's another engagement language. It's the language of 3D engagement. Yes. And 2024 does feel like it could be a watershed year in sort of emphasizing the importance of that language and of brands speaking that language to an ever-increasing size of, of the consumer base. I suspect actually one of the surprises we will see in 2024, not in terms of scale and distribution reach, but in terms of demonstrating the power of 3D engagement will be the experiences that are launched on the Vision Pro. I don't want to predict that VR, AR headgear is going to suddenly be on mm -hmm. everyone's, you know, sort of forehead. But I do think that the experiences the Vision Pro will enable brands to create with partners who understand the language of 3D engagement, who understand what it means to create 
an incentivized, fun experience with partners who understand how to take that experience and direct it towards some type of commercial outcome. Partners who understand how to demonstrate that those experiences can be tracked and that attribution is possible. All the things that we have worked so hard to develop as core capabilities. But the Vision Pro, I think, is going to open more and more eyes and get a tremendous amount of attention. And it's sort of ironic in a sense that two of the often considered the big four, big five, Apple and Meta, might be the companies that really bring the spotlight to what the next wave of internet and digital culture is going to look like. Yeah, it's a really great point. When I was up at Meta's headquarters for their developers conference, I tested out the Quest headset within the mixed reality portion. I have to be honest, I stepped into it. The last time I was in a, a VR experience, it was fully immersive and I did not enjoy it really. And when you're in a blended experience of virtual and real life, it was very comfortable. I was walking around a room and I was playing an interactive experience, but I knew exactly where I was. I could see people waving to me out the window. It was the beautiful blending of the physical and digital life, the digital we talk about so much. And so I was impressed that I think the adoption, because again, they're leaning into that mixed reality side too. I think you're right. I think Apple and Meta can lead us there. As we wonder about where the business will go, and we think of all of these capabilities I just mentioned that are so critical, are there one or two things that you think are most important that we need to bring to our partners in order for them to be successful in the 3D web? I talk to the sales team about stuff like this a lot because all you really have to do is ask the right questions and the brand will give you the answers. What their priorities are, what are the hot buttons internally that are either things they need to prove, disprove, metrics they have to deliver, what went wrong with other campaigns or when they tried new strategies. So I think it's important that we know it goes back to that word commanding. We need to be in command of facilitating the right conversation to to get to that quickly. And then we need to build their confidence in us that we will, again, uphold their hand through this process. And we're going to make them stars. The other thing that I do, I am having fun saying to some CMOs, and again, it's probably just me having a bit of fun imagining my old job and my old life is CMOs, they get spun around and turned over every two years. It's so frustrating to them. And just the little carrot that we have a way, a very de-risked way to change the way your voice is in the boardroom. Because I believe that we can make you be the person that not only can show up and explain this space credibly to the rest of the C-suite, but also that you can lead on R&D for the company. You can discover the next five digital burritos that Chipotle should sell versus the 20 they have in a test kitchen, or maybe the five new Barbie dolls. Maybe you know they make 10 Barbie dolls a year and put them on shelves, but only three out of 10 is their hit rate. We could over a course of a weekend test 10 digital Barbie dolls and we could give them immediate feedback. We have an opportunity to change how those companies function when they think about R&D, supply chain cogs, 
this is not just about campaigns and marketing. This is fundamentally a different way for you to think about all the aspects of your company. So I'm really enjoying kind of those conversations. And all we need really is one or two proof points. I think the work that we did with Chipotle is fantastic and being able to showcase to other brick and mortar retailers what's possible and how we can drive their real PL objectives. So those are the kinds of conversations or things I'm excited about. And then I'll just keep coming back to for the team. You know, again, it's that time of year where we're all a little tired, COVID's circling around again. And but take a moment to just take stock because I'm just gonna go back to the fact that Super League is a team of winners and we're winning. I notice even in my own language, you and I laughed about this last week. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay, we survived. You know, we say things like that. <laughs> and we say it casually, but we don't understand how much it changes our posture or infects the org. Everyone should go to bed tonight and be effing proud of what we've done and what we've built. And again, take a look around. If you don't feel like you're part of something that is progressive, innovative, and leading, tell me the company better positioned short of the Robloxes, right? But in the small space, tell me the company better positioned. I don't see it. And so the other thing I'd say is we are not going to give up that leading position. So whatever it takes on the growth strategy, whatever investors we have to bring in, whatever brand partnerships we have to forge, you and I put in too much blood, sweat, and tears, as did the whole team. Victory is within our reach. So those are the things I'm thinking. I love that. I mean, it's a great way to think about how what we've done for the past year propels us into the future. And I just think it also reflects the way that you operate as a CEO and the kinds of lessons that you've learned as a leader and, you know, in helping to guide organizations big and now a couple that are a lot smaller. I mean, don't you feel a lot more resilient than you ever thought you could have been a year or two ago? Oh, sure. I mean, the- A little bit, a lot less fearless, you know? Yeah. We've grown at a pace that I don't think anybody looking from the outside would have expected. We've become more important to more partners and brands than I think we were bold enough to imagine we would a year to 18 months ago. And and I think the conversations are different now that we have with our partners. And they are starting to think about this space as a strategic imperative and looking for somebody who is not just going to build a Roblox experience. They're looking for somebody who is going to help them connect this community over the long term. They're not as comfortable experimenting with their budget. They want somebody to help them figure out how they can deploy their budget against the business objectives they're being held accountable to achieve by their C-suite and their boards. And just being able to have that conversation, given what we've accomplished to date and the way that we've gotten here is a place we always wanted to reach, but it's taken a while to your point. It's not easy to get to this place when you're starting from scratch. And in many ways, while we were having conversations with some of these same companies and the company in our company's earlier years, 
we're kind of operating with about a three-year history in the way that we do business now. I'm so glad you say that. Um, it's so important, Matt, because you know I, there's a lot of data that supports that most of these unicorn companies we all try to compare ourselves against, they all kind of didn't really break out until like years 10 to 15, right? Yeah, I think Roblox is now 15 or 16 years old. Yeah, and so we all were hard on ourselves, you know, about these things take time to build something that's truly sustainable and and large. And it made me think of about a month ago, twice in one week, I met investors that I had met during the IPO. So February 2019. And both of them used the same phrase, different meetings. They hadn't talked to the company in years. And both of them in a roundabout way at the end of the call said, I'm so proud of you all. And it kind of made me chuckle a little, but the theme was good for you guys. Good for you guys for figuring out that you were in a, a market category, esports, and had a business model that wasn't going to scale. You read the signs. Yeah, it's a pivot. You could justify the things we learned. But I mean, it was another good moment of, you know, again, it's time to kind of give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back, but then also the rocket fuel for next year, right? It's rewarding, but also we have to remember these things take time. I think I'm going to wrap us up here with just one thought that occurred to me based on something you said a few minutes ago, which is that you encourage the sales team to ask questions and to listen to the answers, knowing that they are equipped with a terrific arsenal of ideas and tactics and strategies to bring back to the person they're listening to, almost irrespective of what that client or prospective client says. Yeah. And, you know, the person who might be the most remarkable and famous and accomplished interviewer of all time. Larry King, he was certainly a student of current events and culture, but his style before an interview, his prep did not include research. He didn't research the people he was interviewing. He just listened. Yep. And he instinctively read the room. You know, you can see when a human being's eyes twinkle. You can see when they look at their phone. You can see when they're really probably not paying attention anymore to, <laughs> to your slides. That is a real art, reading that room. We were talking to a, a, a CMO of a very large brand a few weeks ago. I thought that for the first 30 minutes or so, it just the body language was kind of saying, why am I here? And then with a couple questions, everything changed. And you made a really important point I want to emphasize. We have a team that can take any brand point of view, positioning, desire, and we can creatively solve for something amazing to deliver against it. So what I say to the salespeople too is don't be afraid of what they say. Just absorb it and don't miss anything because the first test is going to be when we go back to them and pitch, they're going to be looking to see, did we really understand them? but the magic of what the team can do. And, and what I'm also excited about, based on some of your earlier questions, is the way the team is starting to learn those insights more to think too about how we can standardize more of our product offerings to meet more 
deeply inside verticals as well. So we're getting smarter as well as really able to create things that are beautifully custom and deliver against the brand goals. It's so great. It's been a ton of fun talking about where we've been, where we are, where we're headed, and what I think listeners will have the chance to take from this is understanding what it requires to come up with the right strategies, both to enter a new market, especially if you're pivoting a business, how to cultivate the right culture, how to build a team that can be nimble, and then what are some of the key ingredients to success, whether it's the way that you act as a revenue generator, whether it's how you support your executive team, what culture can do to really help an organization survive difficult times, and how you can support partners to the extent that your business is dependent upon them and they become important contributors to the future. And so I really do think if we were to get to the point of transcribing this and we put down the bullet points of the lessons learned, it will be quite a valuable read for anyone who doesn't choose to listen directly. So thank you for being on Beam and our company podcast. And I'm sure this episode will be one that helps us grow. Thank you. And I really think you've been doing a fantastic job. You and our whole creative studio team. I'm just, it's so nice to see the proof and the evidence of all of this powerful knowledge and insight and curiosity that we have in this space. So thank you for your leadership in it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to like and follow us and find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We look forward to having you back for our next episode. <music>